Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Vanishing Prince by G.K. Chesterton, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 1. This tale begins among a tangle of tales round a name that is at once recent and legendary. The name is that of Michael O'Neill, popularly called Prince Michael, partly because he claimed descent from ancient Fenian princes and partly because he was credited with a plan to make himself Prince-President of Ireland, as the last Napoleon did of France. He was undoubtedly a gentleman of honourable pedigree, and of many accomplishments, but two of his accomplishments emerged from all the rest. He had a talent for appearing when he was not wanted, and a talent for disappearing when he was wanted, especially when he was wanted by the police. It may be added that his disappearances were more dangerous than his appearances. 
In the latter, he seldom went beyond the sensational, pasting up seditious placards, tearing down official placards, making flamboyant speeches, or unfurling forbidden flags. But in order to effect the former, he would sometimes fight for his freedom with startling energy, from which men were sometimes lucky to escape with a broken head instead of a broken neck. His most famous feats of escape, however, were due to dexterity and not to violence. On a cloudless summer morning he had come down a country road white with dust, and, pausing outside a farmhouse, had told the farmer's daughter with elegant indifference that the local police were in pursuit of him. The girl's name was Bridget Royce, a sombre and even sullen type of beauty, and she looked at him darkly as if in doubt, and said, "'Do you want me to hide you?' Upon which he only laughed, leaped lightly over the stone wall, and strode toward the farm, merely throwing over his shoulder the remark, "'Thank you. I have generally been quite capable of hiding myself.' In which proceeding he acted with a tragic ignorance of the nature of women, and there fell on his path in that sunshine a shadow of doom. While he disappeared through the farmhouse, the girl remained for a few moments looking up the road, and two perspiring policemen came plowing up to the door where she stood. Though still angry, she was still silent, and a quarter of an hour later the officers had searched the house and were already inspecting the kitchen garden and cornfield behind it. In the ugly reaction of her mood, she might have been tempted even to point out the fugitive, but for a small difficulty that she had no more notion than the policemen had of where he could possibly have gone. The kitchen garden was enclosed by a very low wall, and the cornfield beyond lay a slant like a square patch on a great green hill, on which he could still have been seen even as a dot in the distance. Everything stood solid in its familiar place. The apple tree was too small to support or hide a climber. The only shed stood open and obviously empty. There was no sound save the droning of summer flies and the occasional flutter of a bird unfamiliar enough to be surprised by the scarecrow in the field. There was scarcely a shadow save a few blue lines that fell from the thin tree. Every detail was picked out by the brilliant daylight as if in a microscope. The girl described the scene later with all the passionate realism of her race, and, whether or not the policemen had a similar eye for the picturesque, they had at least an eye for the facts of the case and were compelled to give up the chase and retire from the scene. Bridget Royce remained as if in a trance, staring at the sunlit garden in which a man had just vanished like a fairy. She was still in a sinister mood, and the miracle took in her mind a character of unfriendliness and fear, as if the fairy were decidedly a bad fairy. The sun upon the glittering garden depressed her more than the darkness, but she continued to stare at it. Then the world itself went half-witted, and she screamed, the scarecrow moved in the sunlight. It had stood with its back to her, in a battered old black hat and tattered garment, and with all its tatters flying it strode away across the hill. She did not analyze the audacious trick by which the man had turned to his advantage the subtle effects of the expected and the obvious, 
she was still under the cloud of more individual complexities, and she noticed most of all that the vanishing scarecrow did not even turn to look at the farm. And the fates that were running so adverse to his fantastic career of freedom ruled that his next adventure, though it had the same success in another quarter, should increase the danger in this quarter. Among the many similar adventures related of him in this manner, it is also said that some days afterward another girl named Mary Cregan found him concealed on the farm where she worked. And if the story is true, she must also have had the shock of an uncanny experience, for when she was busy at some lonely task in the yard she heard a voice speaking out of the well, and found that the eccentric had managed to drop himself into the bucket which was some little way below the well only partly full of water. In this case, however, he had to appeal to the woman to wind up the rope. And men say it was when this news was told to the other woman that her soul walked over the borderline of treason. Such, at least, were the stories told of him in the countryside, and there were many more, as that he had stood insolently in a splendid green dressing-gown on the steps of a great hotel, and then led the police a chase through a long suite of grand apartments, and finally through his own bedroom onto a balcony that overhung the river. The moment the pursuers stepped onto the balcony it broke under them, and they dropped pell-mell into the eddying waters, while Michael, who had thrown off his gown and dived, was able to swim away. It was said that he had carefully cut away the props so that they would not support anything so heavy as a policeman, but here again he was immediately fortunate, yet ultimately unfortunate, for it is said that one of the men was drowned, leaving a family feud which made a little rift in his popularity. These stories can now be told in some detail, not because they are the most marvellous of his many adventures, but because these alone were not covered with silence by the loyalty of the peasantry. These alone found their way into official reports, and it is these which three of the chief officials of the country were reading and discussing when the more remarkable part of this story begins. Night was far advanced, and a light shone in the cottage that served for a temporary police station near the coast. On one side of it were the last houses of the straggling village, and on the other nothing but a waste moorland stretching away toward the sea the line of which was broken by no landmark except a solitary tower of the prehistoric pattern still found in Ireland, standing up as slender as a column, but pointed like a pyramid. At a wooden table in front of the window, which normally looked out on this landscape, sat two men in plain clothes, but with something of a military bearing, for indeed they were the two chiefs of the detective service of that district. The senior of the two, both in age and rank, was a sturdy man with a short white beard, and frosty eyebrows fixed in a frown which suggested rather worry than severity. His name was Morton, and he was a Liverpool man, long pickled in the Irish quarrels, and doing his duty among them in a sour fashion not altogether unsympathetic. He had spoken a few sentences to his companion, Nolan, a tall, dark man with a cadaverous, equine Irish face, when he seemed to remember something and touched a bell which rang in another room. 
The subordinate he had summoned immediately appeared with a sheaf of papers in his hand. "'Sit down, Wilson,' he said. "'Those are the depositions, I suppose.' "'Yes,' replied the third officer. "'I think I've got all there is to be got out of them, so I sent the people away.' "'Did Mary Cregan give evidence?' asked Morton, with a frown that looked a little heavier than usual. "'No, but our master did.' answered the man called Wilson, who had flat red hair and a plain pale face, not without sharpness. I think he's hanging round the girl himself and is out against a rival. There's always some reason of that sort when we are told the truth about anything, and you bet the other girl told right enough. Well, let's hope there'll be some sort of use, remarked Nolan in a somewhat hopeless manner, gazing out into the darkness. Anything is to the good? said Morton, that lets us know anything about him. Do we know anything about him? asked the melancholy Irishman. We know one thing about him, said Wilson, and it's the one thing that nobody ever knew before. We know where he is. Are you sure? inquired Morton, looking at him sharply. Quite sure, replied his assistant. At this very minute he's in that tower over there by the shore. If you go near enough, you'll see the candle burning in the window. As he spoke, the noise of a horn sounded on the road outside, and a moment after they heard the throbbing of a motor car brought to a standstill before the door. Morton instantly sprang to his feet. Thank the Lord that's the car from Dublin, he said. I can't do anything without special authority. Not if he was sitting on the top of the tower and putting out his tongue at us. But the chief can do what he thinks best. He hurried out to the entrance and was soon exchanging greetings with a big handsome man in a fur coat, who brought into the dingy little station the indescribable glow of the great cities and the luxuries of the great world. For this was Sir Walter Carey, an official of such eminence in Dublin Castle, that nothing short of the case of Prince Michael would have brought him on such a journey in the middle of the night. But the case of Prince Michael, as it happened, was complicated by legalism as well as lawlessness. On the last occasion he had escaped by a forensic quibble and not, as usual, by a private escapade. And it was a question whether at the moment he was amenable to the law or not. It might be necessary to stretch a point, but a man like Sir Walter could probably stretch it as far as he liked. Whether he intended to do so was a question to be considered. Despite the almost aggressive touch of luxury in the fur coat, it soon became apparent that Sir Walter's large leonine head was for use as well as ornament. And he considered the matter soberly and sanely enough. Five chairs were set round the plain deal table, for who should Sir Walter bring with him but his young relative and secretary, Horn Fisher? Sir Walter listened with grave attention, and his secretary with polite boredom, to the string of episodes by which the police had traced the flying rebel from the steps of the hotel to the solitary tower beside the sea. There, at least, he was cornered between the moors and the breakers, and the scout sent by Wilson reported him as writing under a solitary candle, perhaps composing another of his tremendous proclamations. Indeed, it would have been typical of him to choose it as the place in which finally to turn to bay. 
He had some remote claim on it, as on a family castle, and those who knew him thought him capable of imitating the primitive Irish chieftains who fell fighting against the sea. "'I saw some queer-looking people leaving as I came in,' said Sir Walter Carey. "'I suppose they were your witnesses. But why do they turn up here at this time of night?' Morton smiled grimly. "'They come here by night because they would be dead men if they came here by day.' They're criminals committing a crime that is more horrible here than theft or murder. What crime do you mean? asked the other with some curiosity. They're helping the law, said Morton. That's the end of Part 1 of The Vanishing Prince by G.K. Chesterton. Join us next time when we find out our intrepid detectives' plans for catching their suspect. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production. Part of American Immersion Theater, Scott Crampton, Executive Producer. Our editor is Audra Schildhouse. If you enjoy Calm Mystery, please take the time to rate us and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. It helps spread the word, and the comments let us know what you like and how we can improve. While you're at it, tell a friend who enjoys a good story, or tell an enemy if you need a distraction. And subscribe if you haven't already. That way you won't miss an episode. They'll download to your device when you least expect it. And remember, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM. C-A-L-M for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com All one word, code CALM.